Let's bow our hearts, shall we? Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you that in your word we have all we need for life and godliness. Thank you that you have chosen to reveal your church those things that you purposed to keep secret in times past. But you've revealed them to us through your Son and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you that you have revealed all we need in the Holy Scriptures and that they are able to make us wise unto salvation. Thank you that we do not need to go looking elsewhere for spiritual illumination or biblical revelation. May we be kept from the deception that is sweeping Christendom today and keep our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, in whose name we pray. Amen. What is wrong with this picture? Huh? I'm sure at this point, Nguyen John is tuning into the live stream, spitting out his coffee. <laughs> Things happen, right? Um, Matthew called me. He is very, very sick. Um, if you look in your bulletin, you'll see his name there. And I got a call from Matthew, who being very ill, uh, he said there's no way that he could join us here this morning. And he asked me to step in. I looked at my watch. Normally, if I'm preaching, I have, you know, perhaps a month to prepare or something like that. I had a couple of hours. So uh, I'm going to do my best here this morning, folks, and I'd ask that you be patient with me. So uh, if I'm really bad, you know, just, just pray for me. Uh, you ever see those old movies and this, you know, those old grainy 1970s movies, you know, where the stewardess has to land the airplane? It's, it's a little bit of that this morning, but no, all joking aside, I have preached before. I think once or twice I had to cover at Egerton Street Baptist, so we should be okay. Um, I also work in a nursing home as a chaplain, so I'm used to preaching to people generally over 90 years of age. So if you're joining us here at Village Green for the first time today, well, this isn't exactly normal, um, so uh, please come back. Um, actually, we were talking this morning during prayer, and I think in the 10, 15 years I've been here and others, this has never happened before, so thank you. Um, and this morning we're starting a new series uh, called Freedom, and uh, actually, you know, getting back to that, the fact that I'm standing here this morning preaching to all of you really says something, and if you are joining us here for the first time, or if you are watching online, do you know what it says? It says to us that no matter what fiery darts the enemy throws at us, no matter what happens, God's word is going to be heard here this morning at Village Green. Amen. 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 And if I can't do it, then I'm sure Dale would do it, Don would do it, Sarah, Jennifer. God's word is going to be heard here this morning. And again, we're starting a new sermon series called Freedom. And it's spelled D-U-M-B. And an unknown author once said that we're only as free as the leash that they hold us on. And if we tug on it too hard, they'll hang us by it. An unknown World War II author said that statement. Have you ever tasted something and soon after desired an appetite for more? I don't know about you, but for me, chips are particularly terrible for this. This and that smart food popcorn. I, I swear they must put something in that popcorn that makes it so addictive. In fact, my wife will tell you that she has a habit of 
coming in front of me and pulling the bag or the bowl away. Because if she doesn't, I'm just going to continue to eat until that bowl is empty, as you can tell. Um, and I don't know if you ever see those lines at Tim Hortons in the morning. Crazy stuff, right? Six o'clock in the morning, you can see the traffic. It's going right around. People are getting upset, you know, but they've got to get that coffee, right? At one time or another, someone has experience with this. In fact, the Lay's potato chip commercial, I don't know if any of you remember that, but their slogan was, I bet you can't eat just one. And that says it all. It's the same with ice cream, with donuts. Many people say that, you know, if it's there, they're just going to continue to grab it, right? And we see this in other uh, parts of our culture as well, in fashion, uh, you know, what to wear, how to dress, what looks good, what doesn't. You see this in women's magazines. Yeah, I better not go there. But, but <coughs> this morning we're going to look at 1 Peter 2. And if you go to the end of your Bible, to the book of Revelation, turn left, six books, you'll find 1 Peter. And we're in chapter 2 this morning. And the message focuses on 1 Peter 2, 10 to 12. So we're just going to bring that up on the screen. Once you had no identity as a people. Now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of wrongdoing, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. And before we dig into that, I'd like to just go a little bit to the backstory here on chapter 2. Throughout this chapter, Peter reminds us that Jesus is a stone. He is the foundation with which we build our lives. He says stone and rock here in many places. And the idea is that Christ is the cornerstone. Everything is built on the cornerstone. That is the starting point. When they would build a, a building, they would plan it out, they would lay the one stone, and everything was built around that stone. Our faith in the church are built on Christ, but it is really all about Jesus. One of the wonderful things about coming to faith in Christ is that he doesn't shame us. We tend to do that amongst ourselves, don't we? Hmm? We shame ourselves, and we shouldn't. We hold grudges, and we judge each other. You know, working in the nursing home, I've seen seniors that hold grudges for 50, 60 years, and they are not willing to forgive that sibling. We see it all the time, but Christ never does that, and he never ever reminds us of what we've done. He never drudges up the past. 1 Corinthians 13 says, love keeps no record of wrongs. And we tragically do that to each other. But how many of you here this morning are glad that Jesus never, ever does that with you and with me? When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, he graces us. He is grace and truth personified. And the opposite, of course, is which is to disgrace someone. When we disgrace someone, we are shaming them. 
And this brings me to Matthew's next slide. As recipients of God's mercy, we are seen and we are accepted by God. God accepts us for all of our transgressions, just as we are. We are forgiven for all of our sins, past, present, and future. Can we honestly say that amongst ourselves? Do we accept each other without revisiting the past? How many of you have ever had an argument with a friend or with a spouse? And what's the first thing that we do during that argument? Do we stick to the matter at hand? Do we stick to what we're arguing about? No. We often remind each other of stuff that we did in 1984 that wasn't too pretty either, right? God forgets. He wipes that slate clean as if it never happened. Next slide. We often define ourselves by what we do, by what we feel, and by what others think of us. Now, how many of you here this morning can relate to some of those? What we do, what we feel, and what others think of us. Oftentimes, we find that more important than what God thinks. Anything we elevate above God becomes an idol. You know, I remember my school days and the intense peer pressures we faced. And we face them, and I'm sure all of you did as well. I'm from the breakfast club generation, and we had our own. But, you know, what to wear and what crowd was popular and why. It was a microcosm of groups and cliques. And if you wanted to be in this crowd, well, you had to dress like this. You know, I remember the rocker crowd. They had the, the jean vests and the patch on the back <coughs> and the long hair. Right, And if you smoked, you were kind of this bad boy image. And then we had the preps. You had to wear the beaver canoe or, or the Benetton or the, you know, whatever. And there were all these little groups and cliques, right? And, and all the cool people had to be at this party. Well, no, no, you, you've got to go to so-and-so's party, right? They were in the A crowd. You know, all the people will be at the party. You'd go to the party, drink this or, or smoke that. Just stupid stuff that I look back on now, and I am so thankful that God guided me out of some of those storms. We are inundated in our society with commercials and advertisements. Just turn on the TV. You know what they charge for a commercial during the Super Bowl, right? I, I remember there used to be a song by Pink Floyd. Uh, some of you in the room here will remember it. It was called Welcome to the Machine, and it reminded us just how programmed we are. Again, I'm dating myself, but we're, we're so quick to follow crowds and be told what to like, what to wear, how to behave, what's good, what's bad, what you need. I'm old enough to also remember the cabbage patch craze. Anybody here remember the cabbage patch craze, right? And I remember my sister, she wanted one of those things so bad. Everyone else had one and you weren't cool if you didn't. Right? They were, people were selling them privately for hundreds of dollars. And my mother got a call from Consumers Distributing. <laughs> yeah, some of you here remember Consumers Distributing, right? That's before Amazon. And, uh, and, and this thing was in. And, and there was this big security procedure to get this thing, right? She had to take it out in a garbage bag. 
And they actually had a security escort to the car. People were getting mugged for these things. It was absolutely crazy. And so they could give one to their kids. Can you imagine? They would assault someone or, or beat them to take it. You know, here you go, Johnny. You know, like, what, what kind of parenting is that, right? I, I used to work at Zeller's. And, um, and the doors would open. And, and you'd have these stampedes of people that would just charge in. And they'd head straight for the Cabbage Patch Kids. And the staff had bullhorns, and they're doing crowd control. And they're like, okay, everybody, stand back. And, of course, the display would topple over and everything else. They gear these commercials to children knowing how it will affect them. And they know that they will beg their parents for these items. They are marketing experts whose sole job is to get to the parents and to get their money in their wallets. You know, another interesting story. You ever been to the Apple store in Masonville Mall? That's, that's kind of interesting, right? They have, they have it's, it's all clean and glass and everything's new. And it's like this experience when you walk in the store, right? Everything's all pristine and, and they got all these fancy things. And then they have these, they call them Apple geniuses, right? And you can't just go in there and you can't just say, yeah, my phone isn't working. I got, no, 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 no. You got to make an appointment and you got to speak with an Apple genius, right? It's all part of this experience. And, and uh, the guy explained to me when I was talking to him in the Apple store that the company had hired a co- uh, this organization to modify the boxes so that they open in a specific way that is almost a fancy reveal. So here we have an Apple iPhone box that my phone came in. Look at it, right? Does it open normally? Ooh, right? It's got this sort of soft reveal. That isn't by accident. They actually had a company come up with that and design that fancy reveal. It was by deliberate design. And it's funny because when I was there, there was this little old lady that got the box with her iPad in it. And she was waiting for some training from an Apple genius. And she fiddled with the box. She was looking at it and going can't quite figure this thing out. You know? and, and instead of doing the fancy reveal, she just grabbed it and started ripping it. <laughs> and this horrified look on the Apple technician, you're like, oh, no, you don't do that. <clears throat> so sometimes it doesn't necessarily work. But anyway, I better read Matthew's notes here. He <laughs> I'm starting to do my own thing. But anyway, I, I better read Matthew's notes here. And He sent me some of his thoughts, and he says, In 2008, two researchers from Leeds University conducted an experiment where groups of subjects were told to walk in a random path while not communicating with the other subjects. However, the researchers instructed some of the subjects exactly where to walk. What they discovered was quite remarkable. They discovered that the people who were told exactly where to walk, started being followed by the subjects walking randomly. We've all been in situations where we get swept along with the crowd. But what's interesting about this research is that our participants ended up making a consensus decision despite the fact that they weren't allowed to talk or gesture to one another. In most cases, the participants didn't realize They were being led by others. And you know, I remember 
when I first started working in the nursing home in long-term care. And after I did one of my chaplain's cheer services, I noticed I would have large crowds of seniors following me. And bear in mind, some of these are seniors that they have some dementia and Alzheimer's. Um, but I would gather more than a dozen, and, they, and they'd follow me to the door. And, you know, it, it was kind of freaky. I, as I was heading to do my next program, I'd turn around, and then there'd be, you know, a dozen 90-year-olds, and they'd be smiling, and they'd just be following me. And, and the numbers got bigger and bigger. And I looked over to the nurse, and she explained, oh, yes, you have to be careful. You see, they have a herd mentality. I was fascinated by that. Even though they aren't necessarily cognitively able to interact, as human beings, we have a natural herd mentality. We see this with children. We see this with seniors. People just have this ability to follow. It just takes one or two confident people. Actually, that's what Matthew's written here. He says, they found that it took just 5% of people walking confidently to influence the other 95%. We all intuitively know this to be true. We could all probably think of an experience right now where a mob-like mentality took effect. There is a reason why our mothers had that phrase, if your friends jumped off a bridge. Indeed, a lot of parenting often feels like trying to navigate and direct our children to swim against the current of cultural forces. How many of us heard that one growing up, right? You ever hear that? Well, if if Johnny jumped off a bridge, would you? Right? I grew up hearing some of that. Matthew goes on. Raising daughters has further opened my eyes to the pressures young girls face to conform to a particular standard of beauty. And much of my own life has been a process of learning how to integrate and accept my emotional framework. In a culture where men are expected to exhibit a kind of stoicism, We are unable to escape the reality of our social influence. Our decisions, opinions, likes, and dislikes are done in the context of our experiences in relation to a complicated network of social factors. We live in a world of advertising informing us what we should or should not like. We live in a world of social media where liking the wrong thing can alienate you from half the people. On Facebook. This is so true, right? He's bang on. How often have you had a friend on social media or you've liked a certain celebrity and then they make that one comment or post that one thing that you disagree with? Then suddenly everything else that you liked about that person goes right out the window, right? You click the unfriend button. Oh, I didn't know they had liberal. T- that's you're out of here. Right? We, we, we're so quick to do that. And it's so easy on social media. Right? Somebody posts something that goes against what our belief system Man, you're out of here. Matthew goes on. This new series is about the wide traps that society catches us in. The pressures we face to conform to a set of beliefs about ourselves, each other, and the world. My hope is that we at Village Green will be able to analyze the way we think and act and bring our perceptions and decisions in line with the mission Christ has called us to live out. John has subtitled this series, Trends That Actually Enslave Us. We live in a time when the notion of absolute freedom is pursued with zeal. 
there is a narrative in Western culture that goes like this. Let me decide how to live my life. Any claims made on my choices must be passionately resisted. I want total control to pursue whatever makes me happy. This is the only life I will ever get to live, and therefore I must make the best of it for myself. Nothing should ever stand in the way of my personal autonomy and choice. As long as I am not hurting anyone else, I should be able to pursue whatever gives me pleasure. The highest virtue is absolute freedom, and the only sin is limiting my desires. Wow, lots of eyes in there that Matthew's written, right? Lots of, of, of mys, all about me, right? If, if we live for ourselves, we are our own moral compass. We determine what's right. We determine what's wrong. And under those conditions, that's a pretty scary world. Right away, we have a problem, Matthew goes on, a conflict between the essence of New Testament Christianity and the cultural narrative I have just described. On Friday, I happened to be in a class about freedom and identity in the theology of Catholic theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar. Good timing, God, he says. My professor, Sister Gill, presented us with the paradox of Christian freedom. Humanity is most free when it accepts its own limitations. In faithfulness to a higher authority beyond the self, humanity discovers its freedom. Looking to Christ, Balthazar writes this, Infinite freedom appears on stage in the form of Jesus Christ's loneliness and obedience unto death. The model of what it means to a person is wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. We can ask, was Jesus concerned with making the best of his life for himself? Was Christ's mission a mission to maximize his earthly pleasure? Excuse me. He goes on, if we are going to say that we follow Christ, this leads naturally into questions about identity. What does it mean to have an identity formed and shaped by being in Christ? Matthew is bang on here. Look, we have certain liberties. I get that. But if your liberties are at the expense of your witness, that's not liberty at all. That's hypocrisy. And we need to start living as men and women who love Jesus and let that be seen and displayed by the way that we conduct ourselves, right? In a way that we speak, in the way that we socialize, in the places that we go, so that people can see that we have been truly delivered out of the darkness into the light. Because our salvation was purchased for us at a very, very high price, the blood of Jesus Christ. Don't trample on that. And this is what Peter is saying here. We're pilgrims, so therefore abstain. He goes, 1 Peter 2, 10 to 12. Once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will honor God when he judges the world. Can we go to the last slide now? 
Christian identity is shaped by God's choice of us. And he goes on, Christian identity is the full expression of what it means to be a person. Christian identity is shaped by God's choice of us, and it is the full expression of what it means to be a person. We need to be taking constant inventory of our lives and asking ourselves, is this glorifying God? What I am doing right now, what I am about to do, where I am going, the people I am hanging out with, does this bring glory to God? Or am I just satisfying my worldly lusts? Because the word is instructing us here to abstain from it. Whether it be appetites that are wrong, that we need to die to. All of this we are being challenged with. He says these things war against the soul. We are in a war. We need to take this seriously. We are at a war with ourselves. The biggest challenge to your Christian walk is you. It's our fallen instincts that get in the way, isn't it? And we have to die to these things. This is what he challenges us to here. Our conduct needs to be honorable to unbelievers. People are watching us. Is our conduct honorable? So that a lost and dying world gets even a small glimpse of Jesus. I've said it before and you've heard the old expression... You are the only Bible that some people may read. Let that sit with you for a minute. Can you imagine? You are the only Bible that some people may ever read. What does your Bible say to them? You know, listen, thanks for being here today and and listening to God's word. Keep Matthew in your prayers, please. And by the way, we have a prayer room just across the hall. If you need prayer for anything after the service, please go through those doors and it's on the other side of the washroom. And there are people there who are ready and willing to pray for you. And thank you this morning for being patient with me. Um, I've done my best. I only had a couple of hours to prepare. (laughs) So I I hope we were able to get God's word across to you. And and I just thank you for, for the opportunity and the love and support that all of you have shown me here this morning. So let's bow our hearts, shall we? Lord, thank you for your word, and thank you for the reminder that you are our rock upon whom the foundation of our salvation and the foundation of our church are built. Lord, we take to heart the challenge that because you have spilled your blood to rescue us from the darkness and take us into the light, how we must therefore abstain from worldly lusts that war against our soul. Lord, you brought us out of this world, why should we dishonor you by living like the world? After all you've done for us and to save us and to rescue us, how dreadful it is to act like the world that you rescued us from. May we live our lives in such a way before unbelievers that they would get a glimpse of who you are through our honorable conduct that on the day you visit us, they might glorify you too. Help us, Lord, to take seriously our faith And what kind of an example we are. What kind of witnesses we are living. What are people seeing? What are they learning about you? What are the ways that 
we are honoring you or perhaps or sadly dishonoring you. We ask that where there are things that are dishonorable or that are bad testimonies, convict us, Lord, we pray. Show us areas of our lives that we need to repent of. Help us, Lord, to live lives that are honorable to you and good examples to a watching world. May we take seriously these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much, everybody.